Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. I'm Howard Reed, a partner at Appleyard Lees, an experienced European patent attorney and European patent litigator. I'm joined by fellow partner and solicitor of the Senior Courts of England and Wales, Robert Cumming. Today, we discuss the Unified Patent Court, or UPC, taking a deep dive into litigation proceedings at the UPC and comparing these with those of the English and European national courts. This conversation will be of particular interest to non-European attorneys, both in-house and in practice. So litigation is really an economic decision. And typically it's part of a wider commercial strategy for any organisation. Added to this, the laws of some countries may be more conducive to the desired outcome, while others may not. It might be cheaper and faster to litigate in some jurisdictions, but disclosure may be more onerous or intrusive. Damages awards may be capped or harder to collect. Today, the focus is on the UK and the UPC. We thought it would be helpful to try and paint a picture of the circumstances which a client might encounter in the real world and which it might then decide how does it approach its litigation strategy. So let's assume that the client is a UK entity, that is a company based in the UK. It owns a unitary patent and it also owns a United Kingdom patent in the field of telecommunications. It comes across an infringer or a business it believes is an infringer at least based in Poland. But that Polish business is operating in Belgium where the client's market is. The Polish business has assets in Finland and the infringer has said on its social media feeds that it will shortly open in London. So this paints a nice background for the client to consider multiple different options, how to enforce its rights in all of these territories. And so that's what Howard and I are going to look at today. Principally, the client needs to stop the activity in Belgium because that's where its revenue is generated. It also wants to block the expansion into its home territory of the UK. But it might need to enforce the costs order of any of those judgments in Finland if there are no assets in Poland. So the questions that strike me as being the first ones to try and answer are, should the client enforce its rights via the UPC or should it opt out somehow and go via the national courts? Could it instead, or in parallel, pursue the action in Poland, where the defendant's business is incorporated? Or could it go directly to Finland? However it decides, it appears that there will be a separate action required to block any expansion into the UK. So Howard, as the UPC expert, do you get quite excited when you see a, a background of facts 
which has all of these different countries and different rights competing with one another, jostling for attention. What the UPC brings is alternative, at least an alternative forum for this dispute resolution. And it also affords then within this actually forum shopping as to which, for example, particular UPC local division before which we may wish to bring the case. So this is already on top of the other options that may be available via the traditional national court routes. So indeed, yes, this gives options, alternatives for, in this case, our client. Excellent. Excellent. So just for anybody who's been uh, sleeping at the wheel, um, when did the UPC actually launch or when when was it possible for litigants to file an action in the UPC? So the opening of the UPC has been long awaited um, and finally opened its doors on the 1st of June of uh, this year, 2023. So it was the first day from which uh, claims could be lodged before the UPC, and indeed it's understood that 18 claims, amongst them for revocation, for preliminary measures, and for um, actions of infringement, were lodged on the first day. Best knowledge so far is that um, thus at 7th of July of 2023, some five weeks in, we're now at about 26 cases have been lodged. Not all details are apparent, so some of this is still via the rumour mill. Excellent. So it certainly seems that the uh, patent owners in the jurisdictions which are applicable to the UPC are keen to explore the um, the boundaries of the, the remit of the, the jurisdiction. So could you tell us a little bit more, first of all, around which member states are signatories to the UPC? Of course, yes, no, Robert, yes, a very good question. So um, I think I'll start with that the UPC, it's not a national court, it's above that, but it's um, a court common to um, the European Union member states. And I think that's an important part to start, but still effectively an international court. What we have to think about is, well, which of the European Union member states have actually ratified the, the, the agreements to actually be part of the UPC? And it's not all of the European Union member states. So far, some 17 EU member states have ratified the agreement. The UPC is not uh, an entity or an institution related to the European Union per se. Correct, yes. Um, they wanted to be able to distance themselves somewhat, but um, it's important to, to note that you know the UPC will still have character of a national court so that questions can still be referred up to the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, questions, for example, relating to European Union law, whether the treaties or the regulations, the directives, that are binding upon the UPC. Which of the states of the European Union are not members or not have not signed up to the UPC? So there are a few. There are. Uh, um, it's useful to distinguish between those that have um, have said explicitly that they will not um, ratify or first of all sign up to the UPC agreement, or and then subsequently ratify. So they won't take part. 
those um, are Poland and Spain. They've, they've decided that they will not be part of the UPC. Um, Croatia is also in there. Um, I think it's useful to recall that Croatia joined the EU at about the same time that the UPC agreement was being signed. Maybe it was too much for them. They haven't, Croatia hasn't said that they won't sign up, but they're on this list of not being um, part of it. Other countries, Cyprus, um, Czechia, Greece, uh, Hungary, Ireland, Romania, um, they have as yet not as yet ratified the UPC agreement, so they are not UPC contracting member states. If we take the case of Ireland, for example, um, ratification is to be determined as a result of a referendum, which will be held, and so we will await that. I see. Lots of really interesting information there and something which makes me bring up uh, my atlas most of the time and figure out, okay, where actually does the client need to have an order from a court which says you cannot do this when it is litigating? Because ultimately, that's what we want to achieve. If we look at the position in the United Kingdom, then... In the patents world, a patent right is granted across the entirety of the United Kingdom. But in the legal world, if there can be a distinction drawn, then you actually have three separate legal systems. So you have England and Wales, you have Scotland, and you have Northern Ireland. And so this is an important issue to keep in mind as to when you are seeking to enforce against an entity then which is the appropriate forum so if the party is based in england or wales then you can bring a case in the high court in london if the entity or the circumstances indicate that it's more appropriate for the scot scottish courts then you would need to go to the uh, courts in scotland and similarly for northern ireland there are provisions whereby the court of the United Kingdom can recognise quite uh, straightforwardly um, or quite simply judgments which are given in other courts of the United Kingdom. But it's just a um, quite an important point to keep in mind that actually the uh, most appropriate forum might not necessarily be the uh, courts in, in London. And the regulation of the profession is uh, dictated along the lines of those court systems. So as a solicitor of the senior courts of England and Wales, I can't, as far as I know, do anything in Scotland before their courts. And so we have separate Scot Scottish council who we work with and similarly in Northern Ireland if there are issues uh, there. So if we turn back to our fact pattern then what we said was Belgium and Finland were of interest and so one of the courses of action which I presume is still available is if the client wants to pursue it in the Belgian courts because they're very familiar with those or in the Finnish courts then they can do that right or can they not does it depend on whether they've opted into the UPC or opted out of the UPC? 
Of course, yes. So this is interesting. Um, if we're thinking about a, a European patent that is traditionally or classically validated in some of the EPC contracting states, then you get this bundle of national patents. So in such a case, you'd end up with a patent that is validated in Belgium, a patent that is validated in Finland, and potentially, if they, in this case, I don't think we've talked about it, um, patent validated in uh, Poland, as well as in the UK. And these are all separate national patents. Now, the UPC can have jurisdiction and competence for at least those patents for the member states that fall within the UPC. So they could bring an action in respect of the Finnish and the Belgian patents. You could also, um, if there's infringement um, in Poland, Poland being a European Union member state, you could start to consider that as well. Mm, potentially the UK as well, but that's extraterritorial rights as we've already got today. That's if it's a European patent that has been validated in the usual way, and that was what was done until 1st of June of this year. Since then, we've optionally been able to obtain this unitary patent. So you can have a single patent that covers Belgium and Finland together with France, Germany, Italy, etc. And in addition, you can still validate in the traditional way in, say, the UK and, for example, Poland or Spain. Now, when you have a unitary patent, you can only bring that before the UPC. The UPC has exclusive jurisdiction for unitary patents. The UPC also has non-exclusive jurisdiction for our traditional validations. Unless, unless, and you mentioned it, Robert, the proprietor has opted out of the jurisdiction of the UPC, in which case we're just back in the national courts for the traditional validations. Your unitary patent stays at the UPC. I think the important part with that is that you know, a decision from the um, UPC has direct effect in um, all of the contracting member states of the UPC. So a decision, a single decision of, of the UPC would have then direct effect in Belgium and Finland simultaneously. So what are the fees? Well, um, if we're thinking about starting our claim for infringement, the first of all, the UPC does have official fees. Okay, that's contrast, say, with France, where there are no official fees. Um, but somewhere like Germany or the UK does have official fees. If we go straight in, um, we've got a base official fee of 11,000 euros. But on top of that, there's an additional value-based fee. And the value-based fee depends on the value of the claim. So what might that be? Um, that could be, you know, if we're up to about half a million euros, there's no additional value-based fee. But when we're now at, say, uh, 2 million euros, an additional 13,000 euros, so still relatively modest. But if we step up to more than um, 50,000, sorry, 50 million euros, we now have an additional 325,000 euro official fee to be paid. And indeed, there is already one case that has been lodged at the UPC that has a value of 100 million euros for which they have to pay the full 336,000 euro official fee. That's quite a big uh, disbursement cost. <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, this is a, a pharmaceutical company. Um, 
litigation is expensive, but it's something that they've taken on board. Yeah, this is not where it was originally aimed. Sure, sure. Um, and it's it's interesting as to how the valuation of the claim is arrived at, because there are lots of valuation methodologies. Um, I suppose you don't want to curtail the amount of damages that you might recover. And so you probably err on the side of caution, I would imagine, when you're dealing with a claim of that magnitude. I would have thought so, yes. So just comparing that to the England and Wales High Court, which does have an official fee, and that fee is 5% of the amount for claims worth between £10,000 and £200,000, or £10,000 for claims worth more than 200000 So really, you're looking at about £10,000 to get a claim started, um, or at least the official fee to get a a claim started in England and Wales. But that does, of course, only cover England and Wales and not multiple countries uh, across across Europe and up to 17 jurisdictions. So there's uh, some calculus to be applied there as to, uh, okay, how do we get this thing started. Okay, so if you want to file in the UPC, you have to determine your damages and that will identify how much is the official fee. But it occurs to me that in patent litigation, very often the remedy might not necessarily be damages, it might simply be an injunction because the effect of the injunction would be to monopolize the market and that might be a greater prize than actually getting damages out of uh, a defendant which might not have them anyway and so could you have a circumstance where the damages are nominal there may be zero and you're potentially seeking only an injunction and therefore you would qualify for the lower official fee could potentially yes and you know also with the um, upc you can apply for an interim remedy being for example a preliminary injunction um there you just have a base cost of eleven thousand euros one case has already been lodged and actioned before uh, the upc is in respect of um display of you know offer for sale of um, bicycles at a European bike show that was held in Frankfurt very recently, and that was successful for the claimant. So there's an ex-party. So it's up and running, basically, isn't it? It's up and running, yes. Great. And €11,000 for the official fee, that seems much closer to the England and Wales High Court official fee. Indeed, yes. Now, you've got to be, you know, we're always aware of, that, you know, there are the professional, professional fees to add on to these official fees. Yes, don't forget about the lawyers. Yeah, we do um, need to keep in mind that, yes, professional fees, a uh, very good value, of course, but they they can be substantial. And so the uh, official fee in the UPC of 300,000 uh, or so euros um, will also be accompanied by the lawyer's fees. And... Uh, It sounds to me like we're at such an early stage of the UPC that there aren't really any comparables for the professional fees that it might um, might be incurred to file a claim at at the UPC. 
Yes. So um, that that is an interesting, important point, and it really depends on um, where you're going to be uh, litigating. Um, so suppose, um, by way of example, we bring an action for infringement before a German local division, say in in Hamburg or Munich. Um, it is likely that you know, even working through with with us, and we're coordinating because we've also got ongoing litigation, say in the UK, um, we would be engaging uh, German attorneys. Why might we be doing that? Well, the the proceedings indeed might be in German. Um, there's a for all courts now, all local divisions, and the regional division, um, English is an option um, for all, for all hearings. Um, but that's by agreement. Otherwise, it is the uh, the national language of the court. Um, but it is likely that you will want to have litigators who are experienced before the national courts already of that jurisdiction. And why do we say that? Well, we're going to have at least two of the judges will be uh, national judges. They're from the national courts. All judges at the UPC at the, at the moment are part-time. They're also working at the national courts. So if you've got litigators already familiar, who have already been working with up against um, the, those judges in the national courts, then to have that experience will be highly useful. So it's likely that a team um, acting, team of lawyers, litigators acting before the UPC will be relatively enlarged compared with um, an individual um, team in one jurisdiction. But if we're thinking, you know, Robert, about a um, multi-jurisdictional litigation, you would be having different teams before the, for the national different national courts anyway. Exactly. Uh, I suppose you're thinking it's not uh, multiple actions; it's a single action, but everybody is on the same team. As part of any uh, litigation strategy, you need to anticipate the counterattack, which is invariably that the patent is invalid. And so just going back to our uh, background of the facts or the made-up facts that we um, put together, if we assume that the UK entity has brought proceedings in England and Wales and in the UPC, and then the counterparty from Poland files a response and says, actually, I think that the rights are invalid. How would that manifest in terms of the UPC? Would the Polish business have to go to the national courts to deal with that? Would it go to the EPO or would it go to the UPC? Excellent question. So if we're thinking about, say, a, a counterclaim um, for revocation, in this case, then we have got with the UPC um, what may be considered the first true case, in at least in Europe, of uh, bifurcation, that we can um, consider the um, this counterclaim for revocation at a different court of the UPC, um, you know, staying our proceedings until we bring that back in, um, or the um, the local division or the regional division can, of its own accord, decide on the counterclaim for revocation. But certainly, it will not be um, where we have 
entirely separate and independent um, courts deciding separately on the validity of the patent. Otherwise, as you, you potentially could end up with, yes, one court decides that the um, patent is infringed, and quite separately, another court decides that the patent is not valid. And then how do you rationalize those two decisions? Here, you know, you can, you, they're both brought in together. So there's the critical unitary character element, really. But it, it, it's interesting what you said to me, that the, the case might be started in one division of the UPC, but then it might be referred to a specialist other division somewhere else for the the input, I suppose, on the technical side of whether this is actually a valid patent or not. Could you just talk a bit more about that? So when we think about the, the arrangement of the UPC, at first instance, we have local um, divisions, which are you know, on a per country basis, um, there's at least generally one in, um, local division in each country, except for, I think, uh, Malta. And mm, one other country does not also have its own local division. Um, in the Nordic Baltic states, they've conjoined and they have a regional division. Um, so hearing cases from um, different uh, Nordic and Baltic states. Um, but there's also, in first instance, we have a central division, and the central division is where we would bring, say, our um, actions for revocation or declarations of non-infringement. Um, and that is where you have more the, the technical judges operating, although they can sit in any of the courts. Now, if we start our, our you know, we've got an action for infringement before, say, local division, say, in Belgium, and we've got this counterclaim for revocation, then the counterclaim for revocation could be passed through to the central division, where they handle ordinarily revocations, um, and that's by agreement of the parties, or can or the counterclaim for revocation can stay within that local division, optionally bringing in a technically qualified judge. So several options there, but it's it's good to know that actually it's all dealt with within the same court proceedings, as it were. It's self-contained, and it isn't the case it's going off to different national courts for their interpretation on the validity of the subject matter, which is often where you can um, see parties forum shopping for which court might find the most favorable interpretation of your um, carefully drafted patent. So in this case, it will be the case that is the technical judge as part of the same case. And once that is decided, that will then allow the infringement uh, matters and the facts really to be applied to the circumstances with the, the, the claim charts and, and so on. But it does give a really solid footing, doesn't it, for all of the parties. And that really offers certainty, I think, in the marketplace and for the entities who are involved, but also for the, the, the competitors and the other parts of the ecosystem who are not involved in the litigation. So that certainly seems a, a, a huge step forward in 
for the patent system in in the wider context of the uh, the certainty for for everybody as a trading um, environment. So, is there a tactical advantage where the UPC is fairly newly granted to filing opposition proceedings at the EPO if the option is still available, as well as or instead of perhaps filing infringement at the UPC? So this was indeed a discussion we are having yesterday um, about this. So um, at this stage, the UPC proceedings are expected to be set out to be relatively rapid, that we could get a decision within, say, 12 months, as they really push through. In contrast, at the EPO, opposition may take, say, three years, okay, and there could be subsequent appeal after that. So maybe we will be done in five or six years with our opposition appeal proceedings. It might potential to accelerate it, but it could be relatively long. Um, so you may look to the UPC for a relatively quick decision in terms of um, revocation, potentially. So that's what one, one use of it. The other place where you might use the UPC is, okay, um, you... you unsuccessful in opposition, and that is in invalidating the patent. You've found some new prior art that is potential, is, is, is very relevant. You, now, under the new rules of procedure, the boards of procedure of the EPO, it's going to be really hard to get that new evidence, this new prior art, into the appeal proceedings. So an option is to instead go and file a revocation action before um, the UPC on you know, based on different evidence. Or you could do that after the appeal um, at the EPO because you can bring revocation action at any time. You know, provided the European patent has not been opted out, the, a, a revocation action can be brought at any time before the UPC. So these are the different options that we've now got to play with. Why they're doing them in parallel, it could, it could be for the, the speed factor at the UPC. Um, it's likely... Um, without being actually being able to see what is the documents that have been lodged at the UPC, that they're relying on the same evidence, facts, and arguments. Um, but we will wait and see that. Fascinating. So there's the potential that a decision of the EPO might contradict a decision of the UPC on the validity of a patent. Uh, there is that potential, yes. Which is kind of where we started from, isn't it? <laughs> that we wanted a single system, so there was the uh, guarantee, almost, of this is, the, this is the state of the landscape in respect of that technology. Yeah, so I think this is always the issue we're going to be faced with in that the EPO is not a court. You know, it's certainly its its um, decisions are persuasive, but they're not binding. Helpful, helpful. Okay, well, it's been really good speaking with you, Howard. I've certainly learned a lot, and it's it's clarified for me a lot of the issues surrounding the UPC. This discussion is, of course, just an overview of the litigation at the UPC. In September, Howard and I will be holding a virtual workshop for non-European attorneys 
which will include further discussion of proceedings under the UPC. We will cover additional case studies and potential scenarios, and of course, give you the opportunity to ask us those really difficult questions about the new jurisdiction, which we will hope to try and answer. We hope to see you there. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.